article. How's it going? There we go. Guys, like you are the, the brave ones. I mean, holy cow, you are weathering a tornado to come to Vertical. That's really cool. Props to you. But like, can you imagine at the end of this, we're going to have a really cool story that we all survived a tornado get together. Like, that's so sick. I love that. Uh, I don't know if there's like uh, storm chasers in the crowd, but I'm sure like there might be one dude over here was like really excited about the tornado. Uh, there he is. He's raising his hand. I'm not like that. I'm from Connecticut. We don't do tornadoes, okay? So I'm kind of like, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know how to feel. Uh, we just have a lot of snow. So this is kind of new for me. It's kind of weird. Uh, I'm not starting with a storm chasing story. I don't know why I went there. I just kind of went off topic. Uh, but that's just what I'm thinking. <laughs> so just so you know, my ADD brain. Uh, but if something happens, we'll let you know. Uh, I don't think anything's gonna happen. There might be a lot of rain that comes. But anyway... I don't know where I was going with that. I think it's just really cool that we're going to survive a tornado. <laughs> like, that's so sick. You know, some people from Oklahoma are like, whatever, I get earthquakes like every other day of the week. Uh, whatever. You know, this is cool for me, okay? Let me have it. My point in saying all that is uh, last week we talked about uh, or referenced to, hey, there's a very real enemy. Right? There is an enemy who wants to destroy believers. If he can't destroy you, he'll discourage you. And if he can't discourage you, he'll distract you. And what his ultimate goal is, is to prevent us and to stop us from seeking and pursuing Christ. And to stop us and prevent us from being satisfied in Christ. So last week we hinted at this real enemy who wants to distract us and discourage us. Well, tonight we're gonna just unpack that idea a little bit more. And we're gonna talk about how we wage war for the affections of our hearts. Hey, there is a real enemy who wants to distract you, distract your heart from pursuing Jesus and being fulfilled in him. So what does it look like for us as believers? What does it look like for us as Christians to fight for the affections for our heart. How do we do that? And what does that look like? I don't know if you guys uh, pay attention to the news. Maybe you do because you're in poli sci or whatever, but you are probably aware of the war in Ukraine, that you knew that that was going on. Well, when it first started happening, I was, I was fascinated. I was like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? Is this gonna be World War III or what? But at the same time, I was like, that's so far away then I'm like, it just doesn't feel relevant that I need to pay attention or prepare in any way. That is until a missionary from my church that I was at in the spring came back home from the Ukraine and started telling us stories of what the conditions was like and what other believers, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine were facing. And I was like, oh, like, no, Russia actually did invade another country. Oh, there is an actual dictator, an enemy who wants to take over that place. And there are people who are literally leaving their homes and maybe taking up arms. And the reason I start there, the reason I tell you that story is because if we don't realize that there's a war going on, then we're leaving ourselves isolated and vulnerable. So if we don't realize that there's a very real enemy 
who wants to destroy us and distract us and discourage us, then we are just leaving ourselves vulnerable to his attacks and to his schemes. So tonight we're going to look at Ephesians 6, and we're going to look at three points on how we can wage war against the enemy and how we can wage war for the affections of our hearts. So if you look with me at Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, that's where we're going to be tonight. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So tonight we're looking at three points. Three points to help us wage war for the affections of our heart. The first point is that we need to walk with other believers. We need to walk with other believers. Scripture is clear that we were never meant to live life alone. You just have to go to the first book in the third chapter. Not even that. The second and first chapter tell us as God is creating Adam, he says it is not good that man should be alone. So he creates Eve. So already in the first book, in the very first chapters, we're already learning that, man, it is not good for us to operate or to live alone in isolation. Well, Proverbs 18.1 also says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, mini sermon within the sermon. Hey, Proverbs 18.1 isn't just talking about you not being in a life group. It's not just talking about you not being involved at church, you not having other Christian friends. It's not just about physically being there, right? Some of us can show up to life group and community group every single week and we can isolate ourselves from the people within that circle. Because Proverbs 18.1 is not just talking about physically isolating yourself, but mentally and isolating ourselves from people mentally and about our emotions, what we're feeling, what are our anxieties, what are our fears, what's our sin struggles. If we isolate ourselves from other people in that way, hey, we're not waging war. And we're not walking with other believers just because we hang out and spend time with believers every single week. We cannot isolate ourselves from people about our thoughts and our feelings and what's going on in our walk with Christ. So scripture is super clear that it's not good for us to do the Christian life alone, but it's also very clear that we're better together. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 with me, or 2 Timothy 2, 22, which just says, flee immorality, pursue righteousness, faith, hope, and love, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Did you catch that? There's three directions that you ought to run. You ought to flee immorality, so you gotta run away from it, but you also have to pursue righteousness, faith, hope, and love. And then you have to do it alongside those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there's three directions you got to run. And I can't flee 
sin and immorality and unrighteousness if other people don't know the ways in which I want to pursue sin? I cannot flee sin if people don't know how to check in on me and how to hold me accountable and what questions to ask me and when to text me or call me. I will not flee sin well if I'm trying to do it on my own. So we need to walk with other believers. Right? Scripture is so clear about that. But then I also want you to consider this with me, okay? So what are some of the ways in which the church is described in the New Testament? Think about that for a moment. What are like some of the main metaphors in which Scripture talks about the church? I'll give them to you so you don't have to wonder. It's the body, the bride, and the family of Christ. Those are three of the main metaphors that we have for the church, for brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of the body. When was the last time you ever saw just a single arm walking down the sidewalk to physics class? You've never seen that because parts of the body don't exist apart from the rest of the body. It would be dead. It'd be in a grave. It'd be, what's a, a, a cadaver? You know, like those just don't happen. We are all parts and members of the body. We cannot function fully apart from the body. So that's the first metaphor we see in scripture, but we also see the bride, right? The church is called the bride of Christ. You are the bride, which means you are precious in his sight, that he delights in you and adores you. I just got married, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding. I don't know if you've been in a wedding, uh, but guys and girls getting ready, like, that's insane. Like, I showed up 30 minutes before the ceremony. My wife was there at 7 a.m. I'm like, I just put on a suit, maybe shaved my mustache, which I can't even grow a mustache, so whatever. And she had to do all of this preparation and work. She was getting her hair done. She was getting makeup done. She was getting her nails done. Like, all of these things. And she, because she's the bride. Because she's precious. Because when I saw her walk down the aisle, she was Gorgeous. I delighted in that. In the same way that God delights in us and we are precious to him. So our role as other believers to the bride of Christ is to help prepare you and sanctify you to be more beautiful on the day when we are reunited with the Savior. So we're also the bride, but then we're also the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ know each other. No facts about one another. They might get in fights, but at the end of the day, they're still family. You know, it's like, hey, this is our family. We share the same blood as Christ, as believers. And as family members, you go through the highs and lows. You go through everything together. You do life together. That's why walking with other believers is so important because you're not confessing to a podcast. You need other people to do life with, to know you. Um, I got a picture. Let me see what your reaction is to this. Can you see it? It's kind of cute, right? I was, okay, I was kind of surprised. I thought more people would be like, <gasps> like, what's going on? Well, guys, I don't know if you know this, but in the San Diego Zoo, they put dogs in cheetah cages. Does that seem weird to anyone else? I feel like cats and dogs don't get along. Like that just seems like a terrible idea. Uh, but this is Pepper and this is Spot. I'm just kidding. I don't know their names, but that'd be pretty cool. Anyway, it kind of looks like a Pepper. 
Anyway, they put dogs in cheetahs' cages. And as I was reading about this, it was so fascinating because I didn't know that cheetahs are actually highly anxious animals. That when they're separated, when they're isolated from the rest of the pack of cheetahs, they get so depressed that they die. And in an attempt to preserve the life of cheetahs, San Diego zookeepers put a dog in the cage. And I thought that they would just get in a big fight. But what actually happens is that the cheetah is calmed by the dog. That it has a friend to kind of do life with. But not only is it calmed by the presence of the dog, it actually learns and observes from the dog. That you know how dogs are man's best friend. It watches its social cues, how it interacts with zookeepers and other animals and how it plays and things like that. And it actually has a more full life. I don't know, this is crazy. It's so weird. Like you can look, I'm not making it up. It's not a random picture that I found on Google of Pepper and Spot. But the reason I tell you that is because sometimes I think we think community is scary or dangerous. That if I open up and I'm vulnerable about my struggles and my insecurities and my fear, I'm afraid that it's going to turn into this bloodbath. That I'm not going to survive this. That I'm going to face rejection. And people will think I'm weird. And the reason I tell you that story is because the very thing that we think will kill us is the thing that the Lord wants to use to save us. We, and oftentimes, when we struggle in the Christian life, we isolate. And we don't run to community that the Lord has sovereignly given us to build us up and to sanctify us more into the image of Christ. What we often do is we isolate and stiff-arm community and push them away. And we try and white-knuckle it and do it on our own when God is inviting us to trust community. That they're going to Show us grace and mercy and help us and not reject us. So point number one is that we have to walk with other believers. And the reason why that's so important is because the enemy would love nothing more than for you to think that the people you're doing life with are the enemy. That because they ask questions or they follow up or they lean in, that they're the problem. They're not the problem. The enemy is the problem. They're not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. So we have to walk with other believers. We have to know that they're for our good, that we're better together, that it's good for us to live in community. And then point number two is we need to have an awareness of our enemy. Awareness of our enemy. Right? So... We need to know that our enemy is the enemy, not the people that God has placed in our lives. But John 10.10 has said, or just says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But that Jesus comes so that you may have life and life to the full. So our enemy, he takes no days off. He doesn't get any PTO. uh, And he plays for keeps. He is going hard to the hole on one mission. It's to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal your joy, rob you of all life. 
and essentially destroy any chance you have of finding satisfaction in Christ. That's his mission. That's his goal. Um, have you guys ever played Among Us? A dumb question. It's like, yeah, everyone has. What are you talking about? Everyone's got it on their phone right now. All right, so Among Us, maybe if you haven't played Among Us, Jack Thweet, uh, it's, don't worry about it. Mafia, Secret Hitler. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, have you ever played Avalon? This is a tangent. I have lost more friends because of the game of Avalon than any other board game in my entire life. Maybe Monopoly deal. Not the point. If you've played any of those games, right, you know that there's, you know the point of the game is to find the enemy, but you just have no idea who it is, right? You have no clues. It's like, I'm just going to take a shot in the dark. Boom, you're dead. Nope, not it. Okay, let's keep playing. You know, it's like, I have no idea who it is, but I'm just going to keep going and we're going to try and figure this out and maybe we'll like clue it together. And I just want you to know that that's not what the Christian life is. We don't have to guess who the enemy is. We don't have to try and do like a search or a hunt. Scripture is very clear who our enemy is, but not only is he clear on who our enemy is, it's very clear on what his strategy is. So let's just look at three ways in which the enemy tries to attack us, or let's just know more about our enemy. We have his playbook, essentially. So we're gonna look at the enemy's identity, we're going to look at the enemy's strategy, and we're going to look at the enemy's language real quick. Guys, the enemy's identity is the father of lies. He's also known as the deceiver or the man of lawlessness. His whole goal is to oppose God's truth, to twist it, to take what God has given and to make it make no sense to believers, to put doubt in us. That's who he is. It's his identity is the deceiver. That anything that comes out of his lips or from his mouth is just lies. He just spews poison into the believer. And those are just some of the names that he's been given. And then that's his identity, but his strategy is to Twist God's words and to trick God's people. That's his strategy. Twist God's word and trick God's people. Or just think about Genesis 3. What did he say? Did God really say, it won't surely kill you? And what was he doing? He was just using half-truths or white lies to try and trick the people of God into distrusting the word of God. And this is crazy because he doesn't have any real power. Just think about that, that his strategy is just to lie. Like he doesn't have any real power. He's been defeated by Jesus on the cross. Like we already know who's won. Like he's the loser. He's Kansas. <laughs> same old Kansas, guys. I, mean, I don't know why I was worried, you know. It's the same way. He's already been defeated. He has no power. Here's the thing with the enemy and his strategy. He's persistent. He just doesn't give up. The dude needs a new hobby. Have you ever heard of pickleball? 
Like seriously. The father of lies, the deceiver, what does he do? He lies. And he twists God's truth to trick God's people. And he wakes up and he does it the same thing every other day. He's not creative. He's just persistent. And then the enemy's language. You see, once he gets us to believe in him and buy his lies, his language is shame and guilt. His language is shame and guilt. And I think it's so funny, right? Because he, at the beginning, is like, hey, did God really say, is it really going to be that bad? And then you bite into that apple or that fruit or whatever. And then his strategy changes. Because then he says, it is really that bad. You are that dirty. You are that gross. You are that unlovable. And before he was like, hey, it's not that bad. Like, what's one time going to do? Just another, just a little more. And now he's like, how could you? No one will ever love you. God doesn't even love you. You're so gross and disgusting to him. And his language shifts because what he's trying to do is keep you low and keep you isolated from God's people who are going to point you to truth and remind you of God's love for you. So what is he trying to do? Just divide you and isolate you and separate you from the love of God and the truth of God. And he seeks to heap shame and guilt on us when we were never meant to wear it because Christ died for it. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That you were never meant to wear shame and guilt. That you could experience freedom in Christ because of the, because of the power of Christ. So that's the enemy's identity, his strategy, and his language. And what we also need to know is that there are three main opponents to you, believer. So it's the enemy, it's the world, and it's your flesh. So we just looked at the enemy real quick. Let's look at the other two briefly. The world, what does that mean? It's just anything in this world that would try and convince you that joy, satisfaction, hope, peace are found anywhere other than God. At the, the base level, this is do, have, or be. If I could just do that, if I could just be this, if I could just have all of these things, then I would be content. Then I would be happy. Then I could fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. The world is do, have, or be. Your flesh is just your desires, your bend, the things that you were tempted by. Whatever that is. And those are the things that we're up against as believers. The world, our flesh, and the enemy. Let's keep moving to point number three. We need to realize our purpose. We need to realize our mission. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. I don't even know if I have the right title. It's like 12 Strong. Uh, it's like on Netflix. Thor's in it. Uh, and they ride horses. 
That's all I know. It's kind of the plot. So I don't think anyone's going to go watch it after this based off that. But anyway, Thor's in it. Basically, they have this grand mission, right? And it's 12 dudes riding on horses, facing tanks. And I'm watching this and I'm like, that's an impossible mission. And there's no way that they're going to be able to accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. This just seems insane. And as the movie goes on, they've been given a task that they're supposed to accomplish in like 30 days. And they did it in like three weeks. And I'm like, what? Like, that's insane. You're on a horse. And that's a tank. And I'm just like, what in the world? How did that happen? Like, how did they do what they did? And I think it's because that they realized their mission. They understood what they were there to do. And they realized and understood how to use the tools that they were given to accomplish the mission that was set before them. And the reason I tell you that, right, the reason I talk about Thor riding a horse is because that you guys have been given a great mission. You guys have been invited into the great commission. That you guys actually have the greatest mission. And Ephesians 2.10 has said, says that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you actually have everything that you need. You have the tools to succeed in that mission. Do you want to know what your tools are? Guys, the only things you need to be a part of this great mission, to accomplish the great commission, you just need three things. It's God's people. It's God's spirit. And it's God's word. And you have everything that you need to accomplish that. Because you have those three things. And if you realize that you have everything you need to be a part of this great mission, the enemy's schemes, the enemy's lies, they mean nothing. Because you know what you were created for. You know what you've been invited into. You know that you've been equipped. Look at me, or look at this with me. Right, we've already talked about this one. God's people, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, 2 Timothy 2, 22. These are all scriptures talking about how you have God's people. Check. God's spirit, Romans 12, 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Check. You have the spirit of the living God dwelling, residing inside of you. You are his temple. Look at the third one. We have God's word, 2 Timothy 3.16, Joshua 1, 8 and 9. All of these scriptures are showing you, convincing you that you have everything you need to be a part of this mission, to push back against the darkness, to wage war against the enemy for the affections of your heart. But guys, it's one thing it's one thing to know about the tools that you have. It's another thing to know how to use the tools that you've been given. 
Right? We all can say right now, probably one or two people that we're doing the Christian life with. But do they know everything about me? The Hebrew word yada means to know and be known. When God's creating Adam and Eve, he uses the word yada. Because we were always meant to be known and fully loved. Fully known, fully loved, not only by God, but by his people. It's one thing to have a copy of scripture. It's one thing to have a Bible, to read it, to underline it, to circle things in it. But do you really know it? Do you meditate on it? Do you memorize it? Do you apply it? Do you obey it? Do you trust it? It's one thing to have God's spirit inside of you. All believers have that. The difference between those who are successfully waging war against the enemy and his schemes for the affections of your heart is not just those who have the spirit inside them, but those who are submitting themselves to the spirit. Do you walk throughout the day inviting the spirit in to your decision-making, to the ways that you want to react and respond to when someone calls you out or says something mean? You guys are God's plan A to change the world. Read Matthew 28, 19 and 20 tonight. That's the Great Commission. There is no plan B. The church, the people of God, is God's plan A to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to every single corner of the world. To help break the chains of sin and shame and the lives of other people. You are the church and you are God's plan A. Guys, I just want to briefly look at the rest of Ephesians 6 and then close. Ephesians 6, 14 to 17 says this. Stand therefore, having fastened, fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the word of the spirit, which is the word of God. I just want to point out one thing. Maybe you've heard of the armor of God before. Maybe you've read it before. Maybe you've studied before. But did you notice that there's only one offensive thing listed in the armor of God? Everything else was defensive. It was helmet. It was breastplate. It was shoes. Look at it. What's the offensive thing? What is the sword It's the word of God. Your Bible, your scriptures, that is the only offensive thing we have against the enemy. It's the thing that we can use to push back against him, to fight his lies because we have truth in the palm of our hand. So anytime that he comes and spews more poison into our ears, we can combat it and be like, that's not who my God is. That's not what my God has said. It's right here in his book. I have it right here, written on my heart. In order to 
fight him and to wage war successfully, we need to know his word. It is our only offensive weapon he's given us to combat him successfully. Um, last picture for you guys is, it's, it's a famous one. Maybe you've seen it before. Uh, someone told me that it's been used before in a sermon recently, so I don't know where it got from. But anyway, guys, you could do everything we talked about perfectly. You could leave this room and talk about what your next steps are and what your battle plan and battle strategy is going to be. You can call up your community and be like, okay, what are we going to do? But just imagine if that was you (laughs) and you were just staring down tanks. Man, that would be an impossible victory. That's an impossible task. But we can stand here tonight and not see these things as more tasks and accomplishments because there is someone who stood in our place. That the enemy that we face, that the giant that is against us, which is sin and death, has already been conquered and beaten and defeated. Because of Jesus. Because Jesus took your place and mine on the cross. He faced the enemy. He bore my shame and my guilt. He put to death, death itself. And he rose victorious over hell and the enemy. And he holds the keys. that this is no longer a war for our salvation. We don't need to go out here and try harder or do more to be better, but it is a war for the affections of your heart. So when you look at this picture, do you see yourself Is that you standing there who's just gonna try and put up a fight as long and as hard as they can? Or do you see Jesus who stood in your place, who won the battle for you? And the one who's worthy of our whole hearts, of all of our adoration, of all of our worship, in all of our devotion. Guys, this is a war to stay in love with Jesus. The one who loved you, who died for you, who served you. It's a war to keep him as first place in our lives as our first love. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to take on every sin of the world. Every sin, past, present, and future was laid on him. He bore the wrath of God so that us, broken, sinful, rebellious humanity could stand right before the throne of God. We could stand dressed in his righteousness. Father, that's a miracle. Grace is a miracle. It's a gift that we don't deserve, that we didn't earn, and yet you lavish it upon us. So Father, we thank you and we're grateful for you. And we pray all this in your son's name.